Good morning, everyone. Thank you, Daniel, for serving us with reading the text. Guys, I'm excited to be back in the book of Mark. And we have, uh, for those of you who may not have journeyed with us for very long, last year we actually spent a, a, a lot of time dipping in and out of the book of Mark. The book of Mark has got 16 chapters, and we covered roughly eight of them uh, last year. And we haven't been in the book for a while. And then in this last Easter kind of holy week and Easter weekend season, we just jumped forward and we covered chapters 14 through 16 uh, over the last week or so. And today we're going to be uh, going back into the book of Mark. And this year we're looking forward to dipping in and out of the second half of the book and kind of closing uh, that gap from the end of chapter 8 through uh, chapter 13. And maybe it's good for you to realize, uh, if you haven't been with us again, a bit of the context of why this book was written. See, uh, the Gospel of Mark is the first of the four Gospels. And really, when Mark was writing this, he was mainly writing to answer two big questions. As the first kind of writer, the first person to compile an account of Jesus' life, he was answering two main questions. The first one is this, who was this man? Who was Jesus? Was he the promised Messiah? Is that who he was? And then secondly, what did he do? What did he do? And the book of Mark really clarifies Mark's understanding of these things. Mark chapter 1 and verse 1, we see him nail his colors on this one. He says, the beginning of the gospel, the gospel meaning the good news of Jesus Christ, Christ meaning the Messiah, the Son of God, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. No doubts about what Mark believes about who Jesus is. And over and over again in the first eight chapters of this book, Mark just drives home this point that Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus was the promised one. He was the long-awaited one. And now we pick up here, and we're going we're gonna to finish off this chapter a little bit. And where we pick up with these guys, they're up north, they're outside of the Holy Land, they're in Philippi, uh, Caesarea Philippi, and, and we're going to pick up with them. And really today's passage is the pivot, or the, the kind of midpoint of the book. And I'm wanting to set us up, in a sense, for dipping in and out of the book of Mark. We're going to preach some other sermon series this year, but we're going to be in and out of this book a lot this year. And Mark is, Mark is really wanting to now transition from who Jesus is through to what now Jesus has done, right? And this passage that we're going to look at today also has two movements, two movements. The first movement is this. Jesus goes about clarifying the road that he has got to walk. And then in the second kind of movement of this passage, Jesus clarifies what does it look like for us now to follow him on this Roads. And if you're here today, maybe you're looking uh, online, you're kind of looking into the Christian faith, you're trying to understand what it is that we believe, maybe you're looking for big answers in life, we are so glad you're with us. And I trust that this is going to be a big answer Sunday for us, because Jesus is really uh, laying down the why he had to walk the road and what that looked like and what does it look like for us to follow him. 
And guys, let me just level with, with you here for a moment. Sometimes, as a leader in the context of the church, you look back and you go, wow, that was strategic of me. Well done, Ryan. Good leadership, right? Other times, you step back and you just are so in awe of how God leads his church. And you can take absolutely no kind of strategic leadership cred. And as I work through this passage, I, and as we kind of come out of Easton as we come towards this fill the city five gifts over and above campaign. I'm so delighted in how Christ, the head of the church, has chosen to lead us by bringing us to this passage. See, because as we come out of Easter, this is a brilliant passage for us to reflect on what will our personal response be to what Christ has done. And as we launch this final lap of uh, filling the city in five gifts, I believe this text provokes us and it calls us and challenges us to consider how are we living? Are we following Jesus? How are we walking? Who and who are we living for? Beautiful dynamics of how God continues to lead us as his people. So let's look at this first movement here of the passage from verse 31. And he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer Many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He said this plainly. He said this plainly. Think about this for a moment. How, how would the disciples have heard what Jesus just told them? See, he, he spoke in kind of riddles and pictures and, and, and used many analogies. And, and so often we see the disciples being very confused. But it says he speaks this plainly. And Jesus' disciples, they hear three shocking things. Jesus saying, I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to suffer. And I'm going to die. Surely this would not have made much sense to them, right? Surely they, they're thinking that Jesus is talking crazy. He's the Messiah. They've just, earlier in this chapter, they've kind of declared him and deemed him. Who do you say I am? You are the son of the risen, you are the son of God, right? That's what they say about him. Jesus does give them a little glimmer of hope. He says a fourth, a fourth thing, that after three days he's going to rise again. But to be honest, based on these guys' track record, I don't think they saw it. They just heard him saying he was going to suffer and be rejected and die. I don't think they heard the glimmer of hope. They missed that altogether. And it's quite clear that these shocking things that Jesus was saying, they didn't get those fully anyway. We see this because Peter responds, verse 32, and Peter took him aside and he began to rebuke him. Peter pulls aside the person that he had, had, had kind of deemed the son of God. And he, and he rebukes him. Just verses later here, he, he rebukes him. And we know that he isn't doing this because Peter is against Jesus or he's against kind of what Jesus is wanting to do by way of kind of his leadership and lordship. No, we believe that Peter did this because he thought he was loving Jesus, right? I love doing this. I'm not sure about you, but we don't get to see what Peter said exactly when he rebuked Jesus. So I love to just imagine what Peter would have said. And I'm guessing Peter would have said things like this. He would have said, come on, Jesus, chin up. Don't be talking crazy and thinking about suffering and death. Surely that wouldn't happen to you. You're the promised Messiah. Think positive thoughts. Winning, blessed. 
That's who you are, Jesus. No more negativity, negativity, Jesus. Come on, chin up. I'm guessing you would have said something like that. And, and, and I wonder, have you ever had this happen to you? Have you ever had well-meaning people, most probably out of love, trying to dissuade you from the purposes of God that you feel conviction for in your life? I've had it many times. I'm sure you've had it a few times too. Out of love, but it can be so unhelpful. One commentator, I love the way he put it. He said, not even the pleading voice of love, not even the pleading voice of love must silence for us the imperious voice of God. God's voice has got to be the main voice in our lives. Peter's getting it wrong again, as usual, right? We know this of him, but I don't think he's alone. I don't think he's alone. Verse 33, we see Jesus kind of recognizing that Peter's not alone. He says, but turning and seeing his disciples, that doesn't mean like, oh, look, my disciples. It's like, no, 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 look, you guys also believe what he believes. He's rebuked me, but you guys are buying in too, right? And then out loud and in front of all of them, he rebukes Peter, but he does so in a manner that would almost have all of them go, yeah, and you take what you need to take from this rebuke to Peter for yourselves if you believe. Leaving this, he rebuked Peter strongly. He says, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Harsh words, right? Imagine you walk up to your friend and said, Get behind me, Satan. I've actually done it a few times. <laughs> but why is Jesus using this strong language? He's using this strong language to rebuke Peter because he sees in what Peter is seeing the exact same temptations that the devil tempted him with in the desert. See, Peter is is choosing a different way, and he's trying to suggest that Jesus chooses this different way too. This way of seeking personal provision and comfort or glory and acclaim. Or to prove himself through power. Through power. But Jesus rebukes that way of thinking. He says, no. No, Peter. Don't side with that guy. Don't side with Satan. And the problem isn't that Peter had a competing loyalty. No. Peter was fully on side with Jesus. But he had an incompatible ideology. An incompatible ideology. He wasn't actively taking the side of Satan. No, but he was trying to co-opt Jesus into a preferred path to glory, protection, privilege, power, provision, right? And he thought that he knew the way. And Peter in that moment gets rebuked because he thinks that Jesus has lost his way. But his human paradigm, Peter's human paradigm for the way of Jesus, the way to victory, the way to life was wrong. It was a misunderstanding. Think about this for a moment. Here's Peter. He gets called by Jesus. He's been cruising with Jesus for years now. He's seen amazing things happen. And if Peter was just a little more awake, church, can we be a little more awake if, we were just, if he was just a little more awake, I would imagine that Peter would not have just been seeing, but he would have been perceiving. 
perceiving that actually this is the same Jesus that had been doing so many powerful acts. And, and, and surely if he was so powerful and he could do these things, he was not going to give himself over against his will. And if disease and death and blind eyes and storms and evil spirits could not overpower this Jesus, why would Peter think that Jesus would be rejected and killed by any other human other than by his own choosing? This is the wise Jesus who's taking on the Pharisees and all the sharpest minds and he's confuddling them all the time. He is so wise. Surely, if he's so powerful and he's giving into uh, giving over that power, not against his will, and he's so wise, surely he's the same Jesus that knows he would not willingly suffer unless there was something greater and more glorious going on. A glorious plan or purpose taking place. Peter should have been perceiving and not just seeing these things. He doesn't get it. See, Peter and the, the, the disciples, what, what we know about them is that they, they recognize Jesus as Messiah, but they don't understand yet just how different, how different his leadership and his reign was going to be. They are dealing with the king of the up. Upside down kingdom. And the penny hasn't dropped yet for them. I trust church that the penny would drop for us. That we are dealing with the upside down kingdom. We're dealing with the kingdom where the first will come last. We are dealing with the kingdom where the serving king comes to die. Matthew Henry And his commentary on this passage, he puts it so beautifully. He says this, he says, Minding the things of men, our own credit, ease and safety, more than the things of God and his glory and kingdom is a very great sin. And the roots of much sin and very common among Christ's disciples, that's including us. And it will appear in suffering times, those times of temptation, when those in whom the things of men have the ascendant are in danger of falling off. Church, may we not be those in whom the things of men have the ascendant. In other words, the throne or the place of priority or firstness in our lives during these difficult days. I hope we can see that we as a church are called into this huge element of what Jesus is saying here about our discipleship. And I've got to be honest, this is not an area that I feel like I can claim full victory in. No, when it comes to being a, a person or a people that is fixed on the things of God and not on man, when it comes to being a, a person or a people who are eternally minded and, and not just swept up in the moment right here, when it comes to being a people that are other-orientated or a person that is other-orientated and not self-orientated, guys, can I be honest with each of you? This does not come naturally to Ryan. I'm not sure if it comes naturally to you. I'm too often more like Peter than I am like Christ. And that's why I believe Jesus calls us to come and die. 
come and die to ourselves. And that's why I believe we need to be a people who, as the family of God looking to Christ, the head of the church and our leader, we need to be a people that regularly teach and pray and encourage and provoke and regularly call each other out of our Peter-like tendencies and more into our identity and position and fullness of life in Christ. That's why we as a leadership team feel bold enough, as Rigby just shared with us, in the midst of this long tale of COVID-19, we feel bold enough to call us to be a front-footed, radically sacrificial people. We're a generous people, and we feel bold enough to call us to be generous in every season, in season and out of season, including this one. We're a people called to remember the poor in our city and to plant churches and to strengthen churches that are less fortunate than ourselves. And we're going to do exactly that in this season too. So in a time where many are battening down the hatches and seeking safety or find themselves in preservation mode, yes, we're going to wisely scale back. Yes, we're going to be prudent about these things, but we're not going to stop being the church that Christ has called us to be. We've set our hearts and our minds on the things of God, not of man. Of course, those of you who've lost jobs, can I just release you with joy? This might not be your season. If you're feeling massive economic pressure, can I release you with joy? This is not your season. Maybe let us know if you need our help. That's what family is here for. And I've been so proud of this community and the way we've stood with dozens and dozens of singles and families through this season. It's been beautiful to watch. But for the rest of us, especially those of us who God has given the principle of full storehouses, this is a time for us to open the store doors. This is a time for us to participate even in these lean years. That's what God has given us preparation for. This is our time to shine and we're not going to stop sacrificing together. And we're not going to buy into pessimism. We're going to continue to achieve his purposes because he has called us to follow him in all of these things. So let's be a people that don't just let this slip by. Let's get onto the website. Let's go and fill in those pledge forms. Let's not let this moment pass us by, right? Setting our hearts and minds on the things of God. Let's come back to the text. We're going to look at movement two here. Movement one, Jesus has clarified the road he must walk. Be rejected, suffer, die. And now he he calls us and he describes what it looks like for us to follow him. Verse 34, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And if anyone would, would, if anyone would follow, he's speaking there, I mean, anyone would come after me, is speaking about following him, right? And these verses are, are jam-packed with marching orders for us as Christ followers. If you're wanting to know about your marching orders, here they are. One commentator says that this passage is so clear and full of marching orders uh, that we need to, he says this, the mar- This part of Mark's gospel is so near the heart and center of the Christian faith that we must take it almost sentence by sentence, maybe even word by word. If each day a person could go out with only one of these sentences locked and loaded, locked in their heart and dominating their life, it would be far more than enough to be going on with. Great English at the end there. 
The point is that there, in this one sentence are three huge concepts that will take us the rest of our lives to figure out, right? And we'll most probably never be great at them fully. The first one is this. This is what Jesus look, following Jesus looks like. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow him. Jesus doesn't mince his words. These are all pretty straightforward, right? But the implications are absolutely massive for our lives. So we're going to look at each of them very briefly. They could be sermon or sermon series on their own, but let's look at them briefly. What does Jesus mean by denying yourself? He's not simply saying deny things. No, he's saying deny yourself. It's, it's, it's much bigger than that. It's about taking yourself off the throne of your life. It's about removing yourself as the center. It's about a fundamental reorientation not towards self, but towards him. Matthew Henry says, this is a call to let one not pretend to be his own physician, but renounce all confidence in himself and his own righteousness and strength. Another commentator says, if a man will follow Jesus, he must ever say no to himself and unhesitatingly say yes to the voice and the command of Jesus. He lives no longer to follow his own will, but to but to follow the will of Christ. And in that service, he finds perfect freedom. Obviously, none of this is easy. Denying ourselves, it's very costly. It comes with consequences. That's why Jesus is able to say the second thing, take up your cross. They all knew that when Jesus said this, take up your cross, he was actually talking about execution and death. Every single commentator that I read on this passage seems to suggest that Jesus has in mind the very real, very literal death as the possible outcome for following him. Because 10 out of the 12 disciples go on to be martyred for following him. And it's a crazy thing to say, right? Jesus is pretty much saying, if you want to follow me, Good news, this is an invitation to come and die with me. Great PR campaign, right? Vote Jesus, come and die. Now, we've got to recognize that we're not facing the death sentence. We're not finding ourselves under massive persecution for proclaiming the name of Jesus and holding to his words and teachings, but taking up our cross, I do believe it has its costs and, and we should not mince our words or understandings or perspectives on these things either. As we always say, it has its costs in giving our time, our talents, our treasures. We heard Rigby speak about that earlier. And we also know that following Jesus in our culture does have a cost, and, and those costs are going up. They're going up in our time as God's views and God's absolutes become more and more un, uncelebrated and even often opposed and sometimes vehemently so. But yet still, this loving God of ours, he invites us in. He says, the one who knows everything, that's me, Jesus, the one who is most powerful and most loving, I am still welcoming you in to come and take up your cross. And we don't want to be like Peter. We don't be those who say, yeah, yeah, I see it. No, 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 guys, can the penny drop for us? May we be honestly perceiving what Jesus is really calling us to here. And that's the third thing he calls us to follow 
him. And following him actually includes these two things, denying ourselves and taking up our cross, because that's exactly what Jesus did, right? He denied himself and he took up his cross. So following him is an invitation into those things. If you want to ask yourself, am I truly following Jesus in my life? I would ask you to ask yourself, where are you denying yourself? Where are you dying to yourself? Taking up your cross. No one can answer us, answer this for us, right? We've got to answer these questions for ourselves. And most probably one of the worst things we can do is look around to others. Because whenever you're looking around and you're comparing what Scripture says you shouldn't do, we find, we'll always find someone who's a little bit worse than us. We can start to feel a little bit prideful, right? Or if we look on the other side and we see people who are better than us, there'll always be people who are better at, at these things than us. Then we can find ourselves feeling all like guilt-ridden and not enough. Now, guess what? Jesus said he only does what he sees the Father doing. And when we come and follow him, we're invited to look at him as our standard. No one else around us. He is the standard. When we follow him, we deny ourselves. We take up our cross and we follow him as our standard. Jesus doesn't kind of leave us in in this. He explains why this is a good news invitation. Verse 35, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will Save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Jesus is saying, this is why I believe you should come and follow me. He's pointing out that there are things in this life that when we give them away, they grow and they come back to us. And there are things in this life that when we try and hold on to them and protect them, they actually diminish and shrink in our lives. Love's like that. A generosity spirit is like that. Gratitude is like that. I believe we live in a pessimism pandemic, not just COVID. And as we give ourselves some more gratitude, as we we generous with our gratitude, it just grows. Conversely, Jesus is saying that if we aim to keep and protect our lives, then so much more we'll see those things shrinking. We'll experience a diminishing in our lives. Think about our world for a moment. What would have happened in our world if we didn't have doctors and scientists and inventors all pushing the bounds? Imagine if they weren't prepared to risk sometimes their own bodies by practicing on themselves and exploring and inventing and right? Imagine we didn't have any people, any pioneers or explorers pushing the bounds of comfort in their own lives, defying their own personal security. Imagine if every woman decided not to have children because of the pain of childbirth. Imagine if every single person who ever kind of earned a salary decided they were just going to hoard it all to themselves. What would our world be like? The very essence of true life is is spending it and not trying to save it. That's why we're so inspired by people who who live their lives and who who give their lives away and are, are generous in those kinds of ways, different kinds of ways. Mother Teresa, in her radical generosity of selfless compassion. Think of Bear Grylls. I'm inspired by that guy, just his spirit of adventure. He lives his life. He goes, he adventures, he does it. Think of so many other people in your life, even the simple things, where people do small things of of serving us. We notice, 
We respond, we celebrate, we recognize because we see people spending their one and only lives. We programmed to be like our God and to give ourselves, stretch ourselves, go, serve, bless with this one and only life that we have. Jesus' invitation is not an invitation to death only. He is saying that it is in death that we, we are led to resurrection and a new and better life. Bishop Hooper in 1555, the night before he, he gets martyred, he says these words, Life is sweet, death is bitter, but eternal death is more bitter and eternal life is more sweet. He was about to cross over and he was going, that's it, I'm living for the more sweet. Guess what, guys? We don't have to wait until we're about to cross over. We can right now die to ourselves and we can cross over into the fullness of life. Guess what? Your singleness is more alive when you are dead. Guess what? Your workplace and your contribution is more alive when you are dead. Your marriage is more alive when you are dead. It's the paradox of the upside down kingdom and Jesus is welcoming us into it. Life in in yourself should die. Death. Life and death is worth dying for. This week I read about an Italian general. An Italian general, his name was Giuseppe Garibaldi. And he's, he's, he called for some, some, some fighters in 1880. He calls for recruits and he uses these less than inspiring words. He says, I offer neither pay nor quarters nor provisions. I offer hunger, thirst, forced marches, battles and death. Let him who loves his country in heart and not just with his lips only follow me. And I think we can be inclined to think that what Jesus has just called us into is similar to what General Giuseppe has just called them into. But it's not true. Nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing. Think about it. Here's the difference. Jesus doesn't offer us nothing. He offers us everything. Eternal pay, heavenly quarters, the provision of his presence through the spirit, his comfort, his guidance. He offers us satisfaction, living waters, fullness of life in this life, and eternal life into the next. And best of all, he offers us guaranteed victory. Jesus doesn't lure us with the promise of the good life or an easy road. No, he calls us to himself, and he awakens in us the eternal destiny and our purposeful chivalry and the chivalry of our souls, and he calls those things to life because he knows that he alone holds the true keys of life for us. He calls us into life in abundance. It comes on the other side of denying ourselves and dying. But the good news is this, that we can say, along with many other soldiers who have said of great leaders in their time, that it's easy to follow a leader who never demands of us what he would not endure himself. Jesus leads the way. He welcomes us to come and follow him with all of our lives. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great call that we can reflect on. We thank you, God, that we look back on your life 
And we look back on your death and it, it gives us inspiration because Jesus, just like Peter who missed it, we don't want to be those guys. We don't want to kind of go, oh, that kind of seems right, Jesus, but maybe you've lost your way. That kind of seems right, Ryan, but maybe you've lost your way. I don't want to die to myself. God, may we be those who are not just seeing, but those who today are perceiving. Holy Spirit, come and speak to us and lead us in the way everlasting, which is the way of Christ. May we find ourselves more regularly denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following you, Jesus. We love you. We love the fact that you have purchased this life for us. This is not something we do in our own strength. We welcome you, Holy Spirit, to be our counselor, our comforter, our guide, the one who strengthens us in all of these matters. May we be a people who are found alive in you, Christ.